Hello! This is the inaugural episode of the podcast, What the Hell Did I Just Watch? What I want to do in this podcast is not make value judgments about films themselves. I have a tendency to want to talk about films that I love, and I have a feeling that I will talk mostly about films that I do love. Because perhaps maybe just this is what interests me the most, and even if a film isn't all that great, but it has things that we can, you know, like, excavate, that's what I want to hear about. So I think that that's probably the best way for me to define what I think that I like about these films. But what I want to do with this is much less about me and more about what I feel like films should be. And let me describe the moment that I decided that I probably want to do something like this. If I remember right, it was 2016. I really hope the year is right on that one. The film The Witch came out. I went to see it with my friend Kevin, and I was sitting in the theater and absolutely blown away by what I'd just seen. It was a it was a, it was a genre-changing film, in my opinion. There were so many things going on, and it was more complex than I really could have anticipated. And as we're leaving the theater, I hear people say, Oh, I'm so sorry I brought you to this. Oh, and that was the worst film I've ever seen. Of course, this is me, so I couldn't disagree more. I thought it was one of the most amazing films that I'd ever seen. I wanted to bring everybody there. I went to see that film five times. And so, of course, there's this crisis going on for me where I'm saying, you know, like, why are these people missing the point? What are they missing? I think that I kind of realized in that moment that there's something that I feel like that I could at least talk about or at least at the very least bitch about for a few you know minutes or at least a little while. But then I, I kind of brought myself back. I was like, hang on. This shouldn't be about what you like and it shouldn't be to convince someone to like something. What it should be is a roadmap to decipher some of cinema's most uh, coded language. And I think that's a fun way of describing what I want to do. And I think that's what I'm going to try to do here in this episode. In this episode, I'm talking about First Reformed. And specifically, I'm talking about everything that leads up to the final scene. The scene where we have Ethan Hawke's character, Reverend Toller, embracing a pregnant woman named Mary just moments after he has decided that he can't kill himself. And it's obviously much more complicated than just that. But what I want to do is decipher all the things that lead up to those moments. And what I want to do is probably a little bit overambitious. I'm going to try to do this entirely extemporaneously. Which means that this may seem less uh, perhaps coherent than I'd want it to be. But I'm going to do my best. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down each thing and each moment that I feel like is relevant for that final scene. In subsequent podcasts, I'll probably do the same thing. I'll take one moment that leaves people wondering, what the hell did they just watch? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that title is going to be interesting. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to break this down and I'm going to go through all these things. And I want you to listen along and just see if you feel like it's valuable to your viewing experience. I'm not going to make any value judgments about the film, though I may sound like a fanboy at times, perhaps because I am. But this is what I'm going to do. So without further ado, here's my 
breakdown of the final scene of First Reformed. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Uh, Reverend, Reverend Toller hears these lyrics sung by the youth choir of the Abundant Life Church as he enters actually to talk to Reverend Joel Jeffries. But before he does so, he hears these lyrics and he sits down in the pew and he closes his eyes um, in apparent pain. What he's going through is not something that is necessarily hard to decipher, but what it what the film First Reform does is it hides these very common crises in metaphors and specifically dichotomies. I say metaphors is probably not as accurate because it really is dichotomies. What we're dealing with here are not ideas that are metaphorical to simple concepts in the world. What they are is just as simple as good and evil. Um, and these are concepts that have been dealt with since the beginning of Christianity, since the beginning of time. There's even sects of Christianity called the Gnostics, um, the dualistic Gnostics, who were, you know, they were dualistic. They were saying there was good and there was evil in this world. First Reform takes a different, has a different take on this. And over the course of the film, you see this play out in multiple ways. But what it starts with is a dichotomy. And so we're going to dissect those dichotomies before we dive into anything else. Um, and with the ultimate goal of understanding the film's final moments, um, the moment where you might be asking yourself, why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing it in this way? And what does this matter? When I saw the film the first time in theaters, uh, a couple in front of me uh, ended it. The theater was in shock afterwards. I don't know if it was for when you saw the film, but for me, the theater was in shock. Uh, nobody moved. And then after about five seconds, when we were finally assured that the film was over, uh, the woman in the aisle in front of me just looks back and raises her eyebrows, uh, not in disdain or in you know in in unhappiness at what she'd seen but just in in shock and i think that is a common reaction to the final uh, moment of the film i can tell you that was definitely my reaction um, it still is but for different reasons now but what i want to do is i want to break down the dualistic nature of first reformed in a way that will allow us to take that final scene and understand it for what it is. And that is the thesis and potentially a call to action, depending on how you want to interpret it. But yes, we're back in the Abundant Life Church, and we hear these lyrics, Are you washed in the blood and the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And as I said earlier, Reverend Tuller closes his eyes. He clenches them in apparent pain. Purity. And uh, the antithesis of that, sinfulness, are concepts that weigh incredibly heavily on Reverend Toller throughout the entire film. In Reverend Toller's journal, 
we hear him describe his own sinfulness uh, over and over again. And what you come to realize is that Toller is not a man necessarily that feels defined by his good acts or by what he can do good in the world. He's defined himself and his own sin. He says at one point he wants to rip the pages of his journal out because he hates it so much of what he said. It's so much pride on the page. He said he wanted to rip that word out. It fills him with so much hatred. Reverend Jeffries later in the film says, you're always in the garden. Not even Jesus was always in the garden. Uh, and the point here is that he is obsessed. He is obsessed with purity. He's obsessed with his own sinfulness. But what this comes across as, I think, nowadays is something that is very um, atypical of uh, even a religious, in most of our re religious experience. But to understand Toller, we need to have a greater understanding of the Reformed Church, and specifically Calvinism. Calvinism is a, or was, I should say, because it's not necessarily a huge portion of the church these days, but it was a Reformed version of the Protestant church that focused on a few doctrines that were not necessarily held in other, in other versions of the church. And we're going to talk about one of their five core tenets today. Um, I apologize for any nuance that's maybe missed in the Calvinistic core tenants, but we're going to cover one, and then I'll let that kind of uh, go for however you want. But yeah, to fully understand this crisis, we need to dip our toes into some of that Calvinist theology, uh, specifically the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine is fairly simple, actually. I think when, you're, when you hear it first, it sounds an awful lot like original sin, but then when you dive in a little bit deeper and you realize what they're actually saying you start to understand that total depravity has a very different outlook on the world than original sin does. But first, let me define original sin very quickly. Original sin is simple. Original sin is that all of humanity is inherently sinful ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple in Eden. This is an easy concept. This is just that humanity is inherently sinful, um, that our desires are sinful. This is a pretty simple concept. I feel like we all kind of understand that at this point. Um, we know the basic sins that we're talking about. We talk about lust. We talk about pride and gluttony. These kinds of things. That is original sin. The difference between original sin and total depravity is this. Total depravity starts with the thesis that everybody is inherently sinful. But it takes it, I'd say, two steps further. First, it says, total depravity says that we are inherently sinful. But we're not only inherently sinful... We are enslaved to sin. That is, we have no choice but to be sinful, even when we try in every way to be good. Good acts do not necessarily outweigh our sinfulness nature. And what does that look like? Well, what it really means in this case is that our righteousness is irrelevant. There, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves in the eyes of God, that we cannot be forgiven for what we've done. And because of this, this is the step, this is the second step that total depravity takes. Total depravity says that it is never our decision whether God accepts us or not. That is, our salvation is not dependent on our actions. It's dependent on whether God 
opens his, his mind, his heart to us. This concept, I think, is a pretty difficult one to understand for most modern Protestants, and I'm sure Catholics as well. I think most modern people. But what this does is it dovetails with the idea of predestination. It is never our decision. And this, oh, sorry, I should also clarify. Predestination is the concept that Calvinists had that we are all already decided that our our salvation is not in our hands. And again, that's basically what total depravity says. The total depravity says that we are so sinful and so enslaved to sin and we cannot escape it. That our decision-making, our righteousness is entirely irrelevant in the eyes of God. And I think the first reaction that someone might hear to say that is a person could be entirely good and only commit good acts. And how is that possible? Like you can imagine the perfect person. If you can imagine if you can imagine a person not committing sin, how are they not the same in the eyes of God? And I think that that's a that's a deep concept, but the way that first reform deals with it is fairly fairly elegant and very efficient. In first reformed, one of the things that we notice really quick um, once uh, Toller becomes obsessed with his climate change uh, theories and, and the end of the world because of these things. He looks up Balk Industries and, and he looks up Ed Balk, the uh, CEO, or I shouldn't say CEO because I'm not sure, but the, the head of this company, let's say that, the head of this company. And what he realizes is that Ed Balk has donated $85,000 to the Abundant Life Church. Um, the Abundant Life Church is the only real source of budgeting that the First Reformed Church has. And so what he realizes is, despite anything that he can do to change, I say he, Toller, despite anything that Toller can do to you know, change climate change, he's still a part of this, that he is still, he's still a part of this issue. And he can't escape it. He's, he's taken money from these people. And he's doing so in the reconsecration ceremony as well. He's unable to escape it. While this theology of total depravity and predestination may seem very uh, nihilistic, I I would I would hope or I, I'm giving you a warning now that this podcast <laughs> does not uh, have enough time to deal with the nuance that it might take to convince you otherwise. There are uh, the 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 theology that I'm describing is not nihilistic. It is not um, life denying in the sense that we should all kill ourselves because there's nothing else that we can do. Uh, there is no way that I can deal with the nuance of this. There's a lot of, uh, of other concepts that the Calvinists use uh, to create a more holistic worldview. But for this podcast, we'll just stick to total depravity uh, because it's the most key point here. But I think also, while I don't have enough time to describe that nuance, First Reform does not go out of its way to... Uh, enunciate the exact uh, syllables required to understand uh, Calvinist theology in the ways that you might want, necessarily, if you're not familiar. Uh, Toller himself quotes Thomas Merton in the, in the film, and he says, I know that nothing can change. I know that there is no hope. And what's interesting about that is not the way that First Reform denies that, that there is no hope. But it's it's in the it's in the contradictions and the complications that arise out of that statement and other of Toller's 
statements and quotes that he says throughout the film. If we take that Merton quote at face value, nothing can change and there is no hope, and then consider the opposite, despair. Is despair not the word you would use to describe a lack of hope? I think that that would be. The despair would be the word that you'd use to describe a lack of hope. But then Toller says this, he says, he says, despair is pride so deep that we think we know greater than God. So what is the, what is the audience supposed to think when he says things like that? Despair is so deep, is pri- sorry, despair is, so, is pride so deep that we think we know greater than God. So let's take both of those phrases and compare them. Let's put them together. I know that there is no hope. I know that nothing can change. This is the Merton quote. And then the Toller quote is, despair is pride so deep that we think we know greater than God. So what room is there for either despair or hope? When Toller is in a conversational battle with Michael, he says perhaps the most important line for the film, uh, and especially for this discussion, he says, wisdom is holding two contradictory truths simultaneously. In the context of the conversation, he's talking about hope and despair, the things that we just talked about with that Merton quote and what he said. But the film is not limited to that. If First Reformed were a lesser film, it would ask, it would ask more simple questions about how we should live our life with more direct answers. But what we find in this is not, is not an, a simple Q&A about the nature of Calvinism, certainly not Calvinism or the way we live our life, what we find is just something that defines the human struggle of finding meaning in a world that is you know, headed towards blackness. And I don't mean that in the sense of just climate change as it is in the film. A world headed towards blackness in the sense of a world where every day humans... For, since since we've had kind of the apotheosis of you know a critical mind, we we do wonder about our meaning and what the what the meaning of life is. What first reform deals with is what do we do in a world where there is no hope? And again, we go back to that Thomas Merton quote: "There is no hope. There is no hope." And I know nothing could change. First Reform deals with these dichotomies in some very eloquent ways. What I want to do before we get to the final sequence here um, and describe exactly what that means is I'm going to go through a few of the uh, a few of these uh, dichotomies, these dualisms, and then I will go through the ones that are important for that final scene, and then we'll just kind of you know end up there. The first one that I want to start with is actually probably maybe the least relevant to the final scene, but probably the most iconic for the entire film, and that is the whiskey and the Pepto. At first, you may think, well, this is just a you know an interesting moment. You know, it, it talks about his addiction and you know how far he'll go, but the whiskey and the Pepto, I think, is a more complex dichotomy than we may initially feel. When I first saw the film, I didn't quite process that moment as much as probably I'd want to. 
I I watched it and I I felt the impact of the music and that slow zoom and it felt very important. It felt like a changing moment in the character. But what I realized was this is just another moment that shows the contradiction within Toler and within pretty much everybody here. Now let me kind of explain this too. Toler knows the extent to which his stomach ailments have been ravaging him basically we see this throughout the entire film he's in incredible pain and discomfort he calls these these ailments petty <laughs> which is uh quite uh quite ridiculous when you watch uh when you watch the film but he does he calls these these uh, ailments petty and they could kill him this is this is not a not a not just an ulcer this is something that we soon learn could possibly ca be cancer the doctor is very serious about about getting him in, and we know that this is something that could impact him. But then in the following scenes, we see no changes. We see nothing that would make you think that he is taking his life seriously. He drinks heavily. This is probably the one sign that we see the most that shows you how little he really cares for his own bodily well-being. And what the whiskey does is it shows us that he doesn't care, but what the Pepto does is it does the opposite. Again, it's it's the it's the pro to the to the to the whiskey con, it's the anti, you know, and it it, it is the thing that opposes the bad. And the dichotomy itself maybe is not incredibly complex, but I think it's one of the most revealing about Toller himself. The whole care about his body versus the world is just another step and this process of these, this line of dualisms that we see throughout the film, when he's having this conversational battle with Michael earlier in the film about, you know, like, what do you do when there is no hope? How do you bring, how do you bring a child into this world? He references, he references, he references so much uh, these, these religious things, and he talks about the afterlife. And when he talks about the afterlife, Michael who is in the middle of this existential crisis, who ends up committing suicide, catches him and he says, oh, so now you're talking about the next life. He doesn't do so incredibly antagonistically, and from that moment we actually very quickly go into some narration. But you see how there's two different conversations happening. How there is this life, and then there's next life. Let's continue that same line of ideas on there. When he's talking to Joel Jeffries, Toller's talking to Joel Jeffries later in the film, and he has, be, has become as obsessed as he will ever be with the idea that the world is ending, that the climate change issue is the apocalypse that we're facing. And Joel Jeffries does not deny what's going on. He says that he's obsessed. But what he does is he throws a very interesting line of scripture at Toller, and he says... All of creation waits in eager anticipation of its liberation from bondage. That line is clearly indicating something that is not of this life. What that is, we say liberation from bondage. We're clearly meaning that there is something else. There is a next life that is clearly key in Jeffrey's mind. This specific line is not something that you would be so surprised to hear from Toller earlier in the film. But when he's confronted and he's so acutely aware of the dangers and the hopelessness of this world, 
This line comes off as something completely ridiculous. It, it's completely life-denying. And you say life-denying. I don't just mean life-denying in the sense of it's saying that, that the next world is more important. It's questioning the, the value at all of this world. Joel Jeffries, at another point in the film, says the line that, ere he compares this, I can't remember quite the line, but he says, anxiety is our wickedness. Let that sing in for a moment. Anxiety is our wickedness. And then compare that with his other line later, not compare, but place it alongside. All of creation waits in eager anticipation of its liberation from bondage. Clearly, Jeffries is making a statement about this world. He's making a statement about what we should care about with this world. But at the same time, Jeffries is making a very valid point to Toller about the state of his own body. And so again, there's this, there's this idea of taking care of the self versus, the, versus the, the earth. But there is a very complex argument here going on about the value of life versus the afterlife. Where are we looking? Let's go back to total depravity and predestination. When Toller's in the church and he clenches his eyes at this idea of purity, about being washed in the blood of the Lamb, are your, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? He's confronted with uh, a woman, or I should say the woman. He, the, the choir conductor, Esther, walks over to him and she says, do you remember what it was like? to have your whole life ahead of you. In just a shallow con, you know, context, you may say, oh, well, this is just a comment about, about youth. But in the context of the film and seeing his crises, crisis of dealing with his purity, that line takes on a new meaning. What does it mean to have your life ahead of you? Well, what's ahead of Toller? Toller is defined by his sin, and he's defined by the afterlife. He's a very future-looking person in that sense. He looks towards the afterlife. He does not live in the moment. He does not care for the present at this moment. When you say you have your whole life ahead of you, that's a very life-affirming thing. That's a very, you have your whole life ahead of you. And this is, a, this is a very youthful thing. We say this without the loaded context all the time. Children have their life ahead of them. Well, what does that mean for Toller? Again, he is looking to the afterlife to be youthful and to care about life is to look at this life. We'll come back to that later. The final one the final uh, dichotomy that I want to look at here is not necessarily a dichotomy as much as it is actually just kind of a metaphor. But I think what it does is it allows the final scene to be a call to action, to be a statement of maybe some morality. It's actually kind of a quick little story that he tells in the film. He's talking to Michael's uh, widow, played by Amanda Seyfried. She's pregnant at the time, and she's about to move to Buffalo. And he tells her a story. He says that his grandfather was a priest in Michigan, 
and every Monday he would go to the bank to deposit church funds. This was the first two-story bank in Michigan, I, I believe is the story, and they had an elevator. One day the grandfather gets onto the elevator, and halfway up he takes his hat off and realizes he's having a heart attack. He takes his shoes off, and he dies between the first and second floor. First of all, there's some obvious things going on here with the first and second floor, dying between the two. But what makes it more of an acute statement here is that the grandfather says, he says that he's on holy ground when he's dying. It's a difficult thing to kind of translate, because what Toller immediately says afterwards is that he believes that Michael died on holy ground as well. Michael is clearly not a saint, uh, but he's not a bad person. It's not because of his sins. I don't think that he's a sinful person. I, I wonder in this moment what Toller is necessarily wanting to get out of, out of the story when he says that Michael, he says that Michael died on holy ground. But what we can get out of it clearly, what we have access to here, is a very clear directorial statement saying that the grandfather died between floor one and two, between these two things, and it was on holy ground. Now the next thing is, let's take this to the final scene, and probably the most important scene, uh, if you're wanting to get something out of this, this is probably the most incomprehensible scene in the entire film. Most of the film is fairly comprehensible, whether you like it or not. It's fairly simple and straightforward about what's going on. The final scene is the one that makes a huge statement. And if you're not prepared for it, it doesn't necessarily come across super coherent. I saw the film, I got a little bit from it, but I would be lying if I said that I fully understood what was going on in that moment the first time I saw it. But what's happening here is a very layered statement that's being made by Paul Schrader. Very deliberately, this is not a this is not a this is not a chance thing that happened here. So let's break this down one at a time. First of all, the the scene starts with Toller realizing that the woman, the pregnant woman, is is at this event where he is getting ready to, assuming that he's going and getting ready to commit suicide and blow up the entire church. And he told her not to come, but she came anyway. And so he's in this crisis where he's like, he can't do it. And he, he, he can't live the life the way that he wanted to. There's you know all these things going on in his head. But let's ignore all those moments up until the final scene. Let's deal with the visuals. Let's deal with the dichotomies here. What we see is, first of all, a very clear one. Ethan Hawke, Reverend Toller, walks out with barbed wire and pulls it across his chest and wraps himself in it. And honestly, I mean, there may be an illusion here, not an illusion, but a metaphor or a dichotomy being made with that suicide vest. But what we know for sure is here, is what we know for sure is this. He covers himself in barbed wire. It's a gruesome scene, clearly doing so out of penitence to something. And this is a real indication of his own guilt, okay? And what contrasts this by itself, it's a simple statement we all know monks, or not we shouldn't say we know monks, but we there's the archetypical, you know, monk that we've seen that is, you know, self-flagellating, that is hurting themselves out of, you know, penitence to God. This is a version of that. But what makes it so much more interesting and powerful as a filmmaking device 
is that he's covered in barbed wire, and then he puts on the white robe. And that's when we go back to the beginning. We say, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There's something going on here, clearly. And let's add on to that. He's getting ready to kill himself with Drano. He pours a glass and waits there with blood seeping through his white garments. And he looks to his right and he sees Amanda Seyfried's character. Her pregnant with her with pregnant with her boy still. And her name is Mary, which is fairly fairly direct. That is not something that comes across too much the rest of the film, that that statement, but in this moment it's a very powerful one. But he looks across and he sees Mary. And he immediately drops the Drano. First of all, there's clearly something going on here as well. Where there is, you know, he's, he's preparing for death. And wanting to kill himself and realizing this is his only choice. And then he looks to his right. And he sees a pregnant woman named Mary. <laughs> and that's, that is such an interesting dichotomy as well. Seeing this death in life thing. But what brings that together is when they meet in the middle. And at first, they merely embrace just hugging each other. And then he goes and they start to kiss. And they, they dramatically embrace as the camera spins around them over and over again. And we hear the song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. <laughs> So first of all, we see this life and death dichotomy going on between the literal Mary uh, and the pregnant pregnant woman, and this man who has tried to pull off two plans to kill himself, and who's clearly living for the afterlife, who is so obsessed with his own guilt that he can't live life, he can't enjoy life, and he sees this woman and he runs toward her. And he starts to embrace her, and the camera spins around. And what we get here, too, is not just life and death, as in lights on, lights off, consciousness. What we're talking about here is, what are you living for? For purity? Or are you living for, for guilt, for, for the next life? The self-hatred that we have is something that is very life-denying. This isn't something that I'm just making up as well. I'm not just saying this. In the film, he says it as well. After becoming obsessed with these ideas of, of climate change, he goes to Balk Industries and everything, and he has this tour. On the way back, he stops for fish and miso. So sushi and miso. And he says, such simple pleasures. Why do we deny ourselves? What a simple statement. But what a powerful statement. In the context of the rest of the film, a man obsessed with the things that are inherently pleasurable to himself, any sort of relationship, any sort of preserving his own body. And then he says that, such simple pleasures. Why do we deny ourselves? And then that exactly is what bleeds into this last one, is the life versus death. Are you denying yourself 
by living obsessed with death and the end instead of appreciating life itself. And so we have this massive question. We have these huge questions, at least three layers on this final scene. And you're and, and it's so simple to, to, to wonder what is the answer. The answer is not simple at all. It's just as complex as the question. But what makes it so interesting is Paul Schrader gives us a way of deciphering what he thinks the answer is. And before you get angry at me, it's not an easy answer to swallow. It's not a worldview. It's not an answer that we look for and say, this is what we live for. As the two embrace in the middle, the camera spins around them multiple times over and over again. Visually, what does this mean? This spinning camera. Well, if you're asking me, and what I think is the clear answer here, is we're going between two ideas, back and forth. We're spinning between life and death, and hope and despair, purity and guilt. And that's where life is meant to be lived. And that sounds terrifying. And I think that the idea of living in crisis is terrible, but the idea of living without crisis is also terrible. And again, what Toller says at the beginning, wisdom is holding two contradictory beliefs simultaneously. He says there cannot be hope without despair and there cannot be despair without hope. We get pulled back to that idea of the grandfather dying between two floors, between the first and the second, and that that's holy ground. Are you washed in the blood?